Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. In September 2016, the YWCA Southern Arizona held Part 7 in their Mass Incarceration Community Conversation Series. The Mass Incarceration Series is a multi-year series of free forums focused on providing information, dialogue, and education for community members on the various challenges and policies that affect our formerly and currently incarcerated neighbors. These sessions are designed for formerly incarcerated, family members, loved ones, and everyone interested in learning more about the need for criminal justice reform. This session focused on alternatives to incarceration. What alternatives work and where are they being used now? Can these be expanded and for whom? Today on 30 Minutes, we'll begin with Grace Gomez of the American Friends Service Committee's Reframing Justice Project and Heather Hamill, founder and executive director of Justice That Works. Grace Gomez is currently developing AFSC's multimedia storytelling project, Reframing Justice. With Reframing Justice, she drew upon her previous research, Fierce Mamas Rising, to design a program that centers the voices and experiences of formerly incarcerated convicted people and their loved ones. Her commitment to mobilizing the power and knowledge of formerly incarcerated convicted people is informed by her own experience in Arizona's criminal punishment system. Grace holds a doctorate in justice studies from Arizona State University and a Master of Science in Mexican-American Studies and Public Health from the University of Arizona. Heather is an activist and attorney committed to racial justice and ending mass incarceration. In 2013, Heather graduated from the University of California Berkeley School of Law, where she served as the supervising editor of the Berkeley Journal of Criminal Law. After school, she clerked for Chief Judge Johnson of the Arizona Court of Appeals and practiced law at Perkins Coie LLP, focusing on civil rights and immigration law. She is also a blog contributor to the Huffington Post's Law and Politics pages. This is part one of a two-part series. Thanks for sharing space with us this evening. My name is Grace Gomez. I work for American Friends Service Committee, and I run a program called Reframing Justice. It's a, a multimedia storytelling initiative with formerly incarcerated people and their loved ones. And I use video, photo essay, blogging, and theater, and our first show actually is coming up October 15th here in Tucson. It'll be here at the YWCA. And many of our collaborators are, are in the room with us. We have She Works, of course, the YWCA, Justice That Works, which is Heather Hamill, and, and other folks. The goal of the work that I do at um, AFSC is to influence public discourse around incarceration issues in Arizona using media, and more importantly, to organize directly impacted leaders who will challenge current policy and practices related to unfreedom in Arizona. 
And you can visit our, our website, uh, www.afscarizona.org, and you can look at some of the work that we've produced in that project. Heather and I are going to be tag-teaming the presentation today, so we'll be kind of passing it off to one another. She's my colleague and co-conspirator and fellow freedom fighter. So Heather Hallam. Thank you. So before beginning this presentation and before beginning this talk, I wanted to take a few moments to acknowledge the indigenous peoples whose stolen land we are on right now. Whose stolen land, unless you're a First Nations individual living in this country, whose stolen land we're always on. I'm starting to begin all conversations in this way because it's important to recognize that fact. It's important to acknowledge that First Nations people still exist, that some are being mislabeled as immigrants because of the imposition of our false border, that indigenous peoples locally, nationally, globally are still being colonized, are still being wronged. And one of the ways that we can fight this continued colonization is to acknowledge the harms that past colonialism has caused and all of the ways in which we benefit from it, including the fact that we live, work, worship, love, and play on stolen land. And this is especially important in light of DAPL and what's going on in North Dakota, in light of the attempted land grab from the Utes in Utah, in light of the 202 protests, protecting Sacred South Mountain up in Phoenix. It's also important to acknowledge that right off the bat and ground the conversation in that because ultimately the fight for racial justice, the fight for sovereignty, for dignity, and the fight against colonialism, which is an ongoing struggle, is ultimately what we're talking about when we're talking about our criminal legal system in discussing police and prisons. Our criminal legal system, and I say legal rather than justice for an important reason, our criminal legal system is a colonial institution and is one of the primary mechanisms for perpetuating colonialism and for perpetuating white supremacy. And so before we start talking about the harms caused by the system, repairing those harms, alternatives to that system, we have to talk about the foundations of the system that we're talking about and the outcomes that they continue to produce, right? So colonialism is related not just to major land grabs as we traditionally think of them. It's also related to broken windows policing and gentrification, which is another form of land grabs. Our prison system has, right, is the child of our slavery system, of our convict lease labor system, of our peonage system and is one of the major institutions that continues to produce race, that continues to produce racial hierarchies, that continues to produce poverty and intergenerational poverty. And so that's why I wanted to acknowledge those facts. So with that said, I should probably introduce myself. My name is Heather Hamill, like Grace said. I am a proud woman of color. I'm a proud Filipina. I'm the descendant of survivors of U.S. perpetrated genocide on the Philippine Islands. I'm the descendant of survivors of both Spanish and U.S. colonialism. I'm the descendant of immigrants. And that identity ultimately grounds my work. My ancestors survived 
because they resisted colonial, because they resisted police, because they resisted state violence. And I also recognize that the very genocidal strategies that were used against the Philippine people during US colonialism were the strategies, the genocidal strategies that were developed in the colonization of the Southwest. So frontier justice genocidal strategies were employed on the Philippine islands and that's why I work against frontier justice here in the state of Arizona. Professionally, I'm a former civil rights attorney. Uh, I graduated from UC Berkeley Law in 2013 where I was the supervising editor of the Berkeley Journal of Criminal Law and served on the Women of Color Collective. After that, I practiced law at Perkins Coie up in Phoenix. The work that I did there was primarily focused on defending the rights of people who were incarcerated. Um, so I spent some time working on the Parsons v. Ryan case, which was a huge class action case representing about 33,000 individuals who were incarcerated in the Department of Corrections against the Department of Corrections for improved conditions, and also worked with individuals who were held in our immigration detention facilities. I've also published articles on the criminalization of children of color, on the school-to-prison pipeline, and on mass incarceration. Uh, and now I run a nonprofit called Justice That Works. And what we focus on is dismantling our criminal legal system and ending mass incarceration in the state of Arizona. And we take a little bit different approach. We are an abolitionist organization, which we'll talk about a little bit and how that frames the work that we do, the solutions that we push for. But I was excited to come here and speak to you all about alternatives to incarceration. I would expand that to include alternatives to policing, alternative notions of justice and safety. But before I start, before Grace and I start, because we'll be tag teaming this, uh, we're going to begin by laying the theoretical foundation of some of this work and also the theoretical foundation for understanding kind of crime and justice and the different theories that exist. So the first is, what is crime? To ground this conversation again, I wanted to take a reflection on kind of how the media portrays crime and criminality, what crimes receive the most attention and why, what is the race and class, of the individuals who are portrayed as responsible. And I think that for many people in this room, even asking that question, the answer comes immediately to mind. When we think about crime portrayed in the media, the face that that crime usually has is that of a black man or woman, right? Or a Latino man and woman. And so how does that frame our notions, right? of who's, who's actually committing crime or what crime looks like, and how is that perpetuated by the biases in the system themselves, right? How is that reinforced by the fact that black and brown indigenous individuals are more likely to be policed, more likely to be picked up, more likely to be prosecuted? When they're sentenced, they usually receive longer sentences. So how is the biases that we see in the media reflected in the biases that we see validate, right? How, for some individuals, how is that validating some of the biases that are portrayed in the media and creating this feedback loop? I think it's also important to talk not only about crime and the stereotypical pictures that we have, 
that exist out in the world and society, but to talk about criminalization, because that's a part of the conversation that when, typically when we're on these panels and we're talking about alternatives, the criminalization factor is never a part of that conversation. So criminalization refers to the process of transforming behaviors and transforming people into criminals and into crime. We've seen our system in so many ways, not just now, but going all the way back to the black codes, creating this criminalization process that has a racial dimension. And we've seen as more and more resources are taken from our social safety net and dumped into this ever-expanding prison and police system, we've seen the criminalization of many social problems that were previously handled by a more robust social safety net. So for example, behaviors related to homelessness or homelessness is routinely criminalized because we criminalize the behaviors that people who are homeless must engage in to survive. For example, sleeping outside, public urination. I saw a man get prosecuted the other day, a homeless individual up in the Phoenix Valley get prosecuted for theft of water because he drank out of a hose. So there are a variety of ways in which we criminalize homelessness, which is an economic issue, a jobs training issue, a mental health issue, and is not a criminal justice issue. But we rely on the criminal justice system to solve that. We see this also with drug use. You know, I love problem-solving courts, but, you know, the program that was discussed earlier is all premised around the idea that drug use is a criminal justice issue and not a public health issue and should be solved by the criminal justice system even if it's a friendlier criminal justice system. We see this also with mental illness, with the criminalization of individuals who have mental illness and all the ways in which they are criminalized and their behaviors are criminalized. We see this with immigration. We see immigration-related offenses, you know, such as illegal reentry, which again, if you are an indigenous individual, right, that false border that you may periodically cross, all of a sudden you're criminalized for engaging in traditional practices. We also see this with race in so many ways, not just in racial bias and policing, but then very explicitly in some of the laws that we have, particularly the war on drugs, right, which is a policy that was created explicitly by the architects of that policy to disrupt black communities. And so I wanted to inject that element into this conversation, that when we're talking about our criminal justice system and when we're talking about police and prisons, there's this assumption that everybody in there has committed some crime or that every crime on the books should be a crime. And I don't think we can make those assumptions. We have a huge criminal code in large part because we rely on our criminal justice system to solve so many social, political, economic issues. And I think we should question whether or not that system should be solving those issues to begin with. You're listening to Grace Gomez and Heather Hamill speaking at a panel discussion entitled Alternatives to Incarceration, the seventh in the YWCA Southern Arizona's Mass Incarceration Community Conversation Series on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. So I'd like to see if we could swap out crime for harm. So no matter how we might feel 
changing terminology prompts different questions and forces us to rethink how we should or could respond when a harm is committed. So currently, our response to harm is punishment, prison, jail, banishment, and other forms of incapacitation. But should everyone who harms get punished, as in the example of the homeless person that drank water out of a a hose and now is in front of a, a judge? And is punishment itself a form of harm? And I'd like to share a piece of a letter from a a young man who's incarcerated here in Arizona. He wrote, I've seen it all in here, from drug use to inmate abuse. Here you lose a lot of your rights. I'm not talking about constitutional rights, but your right to do what you want. Say you're the only white guy in your dorm, except the one that doesn't shower, or the one who's in for beating his wife. Whether you like it or not, You must beat up that person for not conforming to the jailhouse rules or for committing crimes which are unacceptable to the common criminal. Those people are deemed SOS or smash on sight. If you're the same race as the person who enters that pod that's deemed unacceptable, they are to be dealt with immediately by you in a manner that's usually very violent. I had to personally smash someone who was detoxing from heroin. He didn't want to shower because he was sick and he just wanted to sleep, but he smelled and other people in my dorm, other races, were complaining about it. I had no choice but to smash him. He was sick and he probably couldn't help it, but jailhouse rules. I smashed him and made him roll out to another pod. I get sentenced in a week. I could have gone to the hole which means I'd be sitting for sentencing in stripes. That's all bad when your judge sees you, but I did it anyways. Why? Because I had to. We see in examples like that, that our system is creating additional harm to address the original harm. So that begs the question then, do prisons repair harm? The, the pictures that you, you see here, and it's kind of, can you guys actually see the pictures that are up here? Yeah? Every one of the people that are pictured here died while in custody. Miriam, I just turned 18. This young girl on uh, the right was 16. The boy up on top, also a young teen, he was in his 20s well. Gina passed away after being diagnosed really late uh, with cancer. And Keeney is holding a picture of her son who was uh, murdered in, in prison five years ago. So with that, now we've covered kind of what is crime, reframed it as harm, added in criminalization. But what is justice? We might say that justice traffics in questions around what is owed, or what a person deserves, but our current notions of justice are very narrow. We currently only offer carceral notions of justice, which is any time a harm is caused, our only solution, our only justice, is to throw someone into a cage or subject someone to surveillance by the criminal legal system. But 
if we start expanding some of those notions and question, you know, what do we position as justice? Who does it serve? How do we even respond or respond to the needs of victims? How do we take them into account? For example, the Alliance for Safety and Justice just published this really comprehensive survey about what do survivors of violence want. And 60% of survivors favor rehabilitation or some other form of justice over incarceration. 60%. Instead of spending on prisons and jails, survivors prefer education, 15 to 1, job creation, 10 to 1, mental health treatment, 7 to 1, youth programming, 7 to 1, and drug treatment, 4 to 1. 61% prefer shorter prison sentences and a redirecting of those money to rehabilitation and social services. 77% of victims of serious violent crimes believe that the role of the prosecutor's office should be solving community problems through rehabilitation, even if it means fewer convictions. So we see here, and actually I'll go back to Grace's change in terminology, right? Instead of discussing crime, what happens when we talk about harm? Because when we change that word, the focus becomes on repairing that harm. Our strategies become different. Problems with criminalization become readily apparent because it's obvious that that causes harm. It complicates, quote-unquote, offender narratives because we're able to see the harms that they also experience. But we're also able to see that repairing harm from the survivor's perspective and why those numbers are so huge isn't actually accomplished. And that's because of our notion of justice is, again, limited to this idea of putting someone into a cage. But other strategies exist. If we take a cue from some of our indigenous communities who have developed over millennia alternative theories of justice and handling um, harms that are caused, I'm going to tell a story from reservation right here in, in Arizona. The community was dealing with a murder. A man had murdered another individual. And the community was trying to figure out how do we repair that harm? How do we repair that harm? And how do we do it in a culturally sensitive way? And the sentence that they came up with was that that individual would be responsible for taking care of the man's family who he had killed. And he was responsible for taking care of them for life. And the reason for that was because part of the harm that had been caused was the gaping hole in that family, was the loss of that caretaking, was the loss of those resources. And so in rectifying that harm, they made that individual who had caused it directly responsible for taking care of that family, which is a completely separate notion of justice and accountability, and also allowed opportunities for forgiveness and relationship building. We also see that across the globe in dealing with some much larger issues, such as institutionalized racism or genocide or acts of war, truth and reconciliation commissions sprouting up based on restorative justice, based off of dialogue, 
based off of acknowledging harms and then deciding together how to repair them. Now, there's a question about whether or not that could be used on a smaller scale, but we've seen some examples of that start popping up across the country. There's a really great New York Times article that's about three years old, but goes through this story of a family whose daughter was killed by her boyfriend who participated in a restorative justice process with that boyfriend. And what that article goes through is how that family healed, the closure they were able to get, the ideas that ultimately came forward, and the relationships that were built, and the accountability that that young man took. Now, because of our criminal justice system and the mandatory minimums that are handed down, he ultimately ended up having to serve a prison sentence, but he's still regularly visited by that family. And so I think we can start looking at some of these alternative notions of justice One, when there's not criminalization involved, when there's harm, refocusing on what does repairing that harm actually mean and how do we prevent creating more harm, which is ultimately what our system does. That's one of the consequences of our our system is that it narrows our notions of justice. It has also narrowed our notions of safety, right? Usually when we think of safety, we have this limited definition which is safety from quote-unquote crime or safety from harm, safety from violence, which is important. But safety can also, just like justice, our notions of safety can also be broadened. Safety can include freedom from state violence, freedom from police brutality, freedom from police harassment. And if we go even further, safety can include everything that we need to live healthy lives. And that can include access to health care and mental health care. That can include access to quality schools for our children. That's access to quality jobs, living wage jobs. That's access to jobs trainings programs. All of those things can be encompassed in our broadened notions of safety. And that's one of the consequences of prison culture is it has really constricted our notions of justice, our notions of harm, the solutions that we take to them, and our notions of safety. And that's ultimately one of the reasons why so many resources have been diverted away from strategies that ultimately create safety, such as those quality schools, such as living wage jobs, such as access to health care and mental health care, and diverted it into this system. So now that we've gone through crime and justice, wanted to take a moment to talk about abolition versus reform and the differences in ideology. And I wanted to start with... W.E.B. Du Bois, who said, and I'm going to paraphrase, to be meaningful, and he was talking about abolition, the abolition of slavery. He said, to be meaningful, abolition required more than the simple eradication of the institution of slavery. Abolition ought to have been a positive project, as opposed to merely a negative one. Du Bois wrote that simply declaring an end to a tradition of violent forced labor was insufficient to abolish slavery and instead required the creation of new democratic forms in which the institutions and ideas previously implicated in slavery would be remade and incorporate those persons formerly enslaved to enable a different future for all members of the polity. We'll have to leave it there. That was Grace Gomez and Heather Hamill 
speaking at a panel discussion entitled Alternatives to Incarceration, the seventh in the YWCA Southern Arizona's Mass Incarceration Community Conversation Series with Grace Gomez of the American Friends Service Committee's Reframing Justice Project and Heather Hamill, founder and executive director of Justice That Works. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. This has been part one of a two-part series, and you can find all of the audio of 30 Minutes on our website at kxci.org under the Programs tab.